Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington. I'm Samba Bachili. Nina Vaca, Chief Executive Officer of Pinnacle Group. An original shark from the hit TV show Shark Tank. The CEO of ADS Group. The largest Latina-owned workforce solutions in America. I first identify myself as an entrepreneur when I was 15 years old. My mother and father immigrated here with a suitcase and a dream. I had a front row seat to entrepreneurship. I am living proof of what is possible in this country. Today, the marketplace is, is very tough. The challenge for African market today is its access to capital. The number one reason why we can't scale as entrepreneurs is access to capital. What makes GLOW so different and so powerful is the access to experts, gurus, mentors, coaches, financiers, venture people, money. When I started my business, I immediately went to engage with different communities, different platforms. Glow makes that experience digital. A digital platform makes it so much faster and so much easier for you to meet like-minded people. The financial platform that Glow have that make Glow unique. Glow is about commerce, Glow is about community, and Glow is about having access to capital. Glow is an asset to every entrepreneur in this country and globally. It's, it's about helping you take your business, your idea, to the next step. Hi there, and welcome to Business Acceleration 2.0. It's the show where leaders go to grow, and we're thrilled that you could be with us today. Want to thank our sponsors, Business Finishing School, which is an online program to help entrepreneurs grow their business to be more sustainable, scalable, profitable, and sellable. They've got 48 courseware with modules and hundreds of different videos for you to go through the program and learn how to get your business ready to sell. And let's face it, even if you don't want to sell your business, who doesn't want a company that someone else wants to buy? So that's the Business Finishing School. You can go to it at businessfinishingschool.com. Also like to thank the Global Leaders Organization as our other sponsor, GLOW, as we like to call it. GLOW is a membership organization that is made for the CEO and the entrepreneur and the investor. Brings us together with our four pillars of community, commerce, capital, and content. And speaking of content, here we are today where we're going to be introducing you to a nice, incredibly intelligent young woman that's doing something really unique and different. Um, and so we're excited to share her story with you. But before we go there, just a couple of one more thing or two more things, actually. One, we want to make sure to remind you about the summit, the GLOW Inaugural Summit 2022. It's happening March 3rd through the 6th in Dallas, Texas. We're going to have all sorts of speakers there at that event. We're going to have Kevin Harrington there taking pitches and doing a pitch off. We're going to have Ford Sakes there. We just got word that Tim Draper and his daughter, Jesse, are also going to be at the conference. So we're going to be learning about all the different uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and where they see the future of it and directions that that, that industry is going. Um, we've got individuals that are going to, experts that are going to be talking about uh, uh, affiliated marketing. We've got industry experts that are going to be talking about um, uh, cash flow. We've got all sorts of, of, of individuals, experts. And the final one that we've got, my husband, Vince Pacenti, who just launched his new book yesterday, The Earthquake. So he'll be there as well talking about his book um, and how he made it to the Olympics in four years, starting off as a very average uh, skier and becoming Canada's number one 
fastest skier. Okay, that's enough about March 3rd through the 6th. The final thing is, is um, we want to make sure you turn in, tune in to the program at the Afterglow Show with Sia and Aaron. So Sia and Aaron are our Dallas chairs. They run a podcast company. In fact, the podcast that we're doing here today. And um, they are they do a show every Friday, 10 a.m. Central. It's live. So be a guest on their show. Talk about what we're talking about today. Carry on this conversation from today and, uh, and join them on the Afterglow Show, 10 a.m. Central Time with CN Aaron. Okay. So our guest today is a remarkable young woman who is involved in something that you might have heard about because it's been in the news quite a bit, actually. She's the executive director of the Comedy Central Museum. Her name is is, uh, Journey Gunderson, and we're thrilled to have her here with us today. So Journey, uh, welcome. Thank you for having me. I love that you're here with us. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is great. And we managed to do this all by ourselves, which is incredible. <laughs> Little well, do the people a, know I, watching of all the technical issues we had here in the beginning, but we're here now, which is great. Yeah, um, I, I had some National Comedy Center staff here helping me set up, I will readily admit. <laughs> well, you better than me. Uh, so let's just jump right into it because I, I definitely want to be sensitive of your time as well. You've got, so your your background is really interesting, everything that you've done, but I think it's fascinating to understand and learn how you got to where you are right now. So if you could give us a little bit of background for our viewers so they can learn maybe a little bit of, of your background of what you did before with the sports industry and then how you moved into what you're doing today. Sure, sure. I came to this from the nonprofit world. I formerly worked for the Women's Sports Foundation doing educational media production uh, for the organization that Billie Jean King founded. And who knew that educational media production would uh, relate so closely to what I would eventually do here in Jamestown. So uh, I had uh, left the Women's Sports Foundation and started a consulting business and one of my clients was the Lucille Ball Desi Arnaz Museum and their board of directors. And they shared with me this uh, this vision that Lucille Ball had shared with the Arts Council and officials in her hometown in the late 80s to establish her hometown as a destination for the celebration and study of the art form of comedy, uh, because no one had done that before. And Lucille Ball felt pretty strongly that it was deserved uh, for the art form. And she was also, she kind of had an aversion to uh, it just being about her. Now, for those of you who don't know, Lucille Ball was also an incredibly savvy businesswoman. So she was the first female head of a major Hollywood studio. Uh, and she and Desi Arnaz really flipped the entertainment business model on its head uh, by producing the show I Love Lucy out of pocket, taking on the executives of CBS when initially they insisted that um, her husband be cast as a as a famous white male. And she said, no, I, I would like my Cuban husband in real life to play my husband on the show. And of course, in 1949, 1950, they balked at that. So uh, Lucille Ball herself has an incredible story um, and became the head of what was the most powerful entertainment studio of its time period, Desi Lu. 
And so when she said to her hometown, hey, I think this is the right way to celebrate my legacy, I think we were wise to listen. It took us a few decades to uh, establish what it was that she had in mind. But when I started in 2011, it was the year of Lucille Ball's 100th birthday. And that's when we really uh, set forth making the National Comedy Center a reality. So from that day forward, we spent nine or 10 years raising $50 million and built where I sit today, uh, the nation's official cultural institution dedicated to comedy. And shortly after we opened, we were able to, uh, in a rare bipartisan effort, get the United States Congress to officially designate it as the, the nation's museum uh, of comedy. Well, okay. So, you know, most people think about nonprofits as, um, you know, obviously a not for business and they don't think of it as being very entrepreneurial, but I want everyone to step back. It's so entrepreneurial. You're still running a business. And just as you said, you were out there raising capital. You raised $50 million. Can you talk a little bit, um, just the entrepreneurial spirit of what you did? Because um, it started as a vision, like just like what you said. She had this big vision. And uh, you got, got involved, I think, seven years ago, right in the beginning, right? Yes. When I got involved, we, as a nonprofit organization, were operating the existing Lucille Ball Desernes Museum, which is a few blocks away from here in Jamestown, and we still operate that. We were producing the annual Lucille Ball Comedy Festival. Um, but as far as the entrepreneurial side of this, it did feel really entrepreneurial because we I was very realistic about the fact that uh, done poorly, this could become the butt of a joke. I knew that even if we raised all of the money and hired the best museum design firms in the world, that if we didn't get the authenticity of the comedy community right, if we didn't get the authenticity of the art form right, uh, that again, this could be a very risky thing that could become the butt of a joke. So uh, it's also something that on paper sounds crazy. You know, Jamestown, New York is not New York or Los Angeles or Chicago. and so along the way, I think uh, what became really helpful was not shying away from that, but really addressing it right on the nose and talking about our geography. And one of the things that's interesting in making the case for building the nation's official Museum of Comedy here is that destination attractions actually do work. So there was research to back this up. And we one of the first things I raised money to do was the feasibility analysis. So we had a third party uh, leisure economics firm AECOM, one of the most powerful leisure economics firms in the world, do a study on whether this could work here and whether it would be successful. And that became uh, the stump speech that I set forth with the first several years just to start uh, fundraising toward this vision. So raising capital is a big part of what GLOW is about. We have lots of, of members that are you know, their businesses are at a certain level and now they need capital to really infuse into their business to grow. Um, with your experience of going out and raising capital, I'm sure you've learned quite a bit. Uh, and I'm sure there's some good lessons you learn and some things you don't want to you don't want to do again. Could you share any of those with us? Sure. At the risk of sounding like I know what I'm talking about, or uh, <laughs> because I learn I still continue to learn every day. Uh, I think what was most challenging always and continues to be is conveying need 
and vulnerability at the same time as conveying strength and sustainability. So obviously, when you're trying to get people to invest in something, you want them to believe that it is going to be sustainable. You want to remove doubt. But at the same time, you're saying, I really need your support. I really need your help. Um, and so that's that's a tricky balance, a tricky balancing act that I think anybody who's raised a lot of money for a project has, can understand. Um, and I guess it was about momentum. Every step on the ladder we used to get to the next step. And I never felt like we had made it until the doors opened. And I just leveraged, we, it was a large team here in Jamestown, leveraged every miniature success. Um, you know, the first grant that was funded was, uh, again, for the feasibility study. And then we used that uh, information and the data we got from the feasibility study to raise the money for the master plan. And then once we had the master plan to showcase, we used that to raise the money for the initial concept phase. Uh, and then the design phase and the detailed design phase. And we were still raising money while we were building the museum. Every single day, we turned a corner and realized we had underscoped the budget for media for one exhibit or another, or the electricians would find something that cost more than we thought it would. Uh, this is a historic structure we sit within. It's the it's on the historic registry, the National Historic Registry. It's the former train station of Jamestown. So we also had to navigate uh, historic requirements in not bastardizing the structure in any way. So it was a crazy challenge where I was constantly uh, raising money to solve problems. And again, using whatever the last success was the week prior to uh, leverage our next success. So when you were out raising capital, you didn't look at it and say, okay, we're going to raise X amount. And when that X amount was raised, you didn't stop. You kept going and raising more capital. That's a good question, uh, because the way I characterized it a moment ago, it kind of sounded like it was a snowball and it and it did become that way. But it's we we always did, uh, I guess, use the initial phases. So once we were able to get a master plan together and then a concept phase, we were really able to get the entirety of the project budget, the capital budget identified. So that in terms of raising money in general, showing prospective funders their piece of the puzzle and uh, how they fit into the big picture was enormously helpful. So it was never done in a vacuum. Uh, a lot of the funding that we secured, whether it was state or federal funding or from a philanthropic foundation or from an individual, the context of their uh, commitment or gift in the context of the whole was incredibly important to be able to show and it allowed them to believe not just that their piece was critically important but that we were being realistic about what we had left to raise um, mm -hmm. so we definitely had an identified capital project budget and then like i mentioned once we got into building it uh, by necessity that budget kept growing and growing so we never really were feeling done and you probably are still not feeling done there's probably right. the next project that you want to go out and do right that's right. You can donate at comedycenter.org slash donate if you're watching. So please do. <laughs> and by the way, you're there at comedy at the museum, right? That's right. I sit within one of the galleries. This is not by any means the entirety of the museum. It's a 37,000 square foot uh, museum space. And it is one of the most immersive, interactive museums in the world. Uh, you may have mentioned this in the intro, but 
we were really thrilled to be named the best new museum in the country by USA Today and to Time Magazine's World's Greatest Places list. Uh, Condé Nast Traveler, when they visited and reviewed, uh, called it one of the best museums in the country, period, which uh, was extremely validating based on the work that had gone in. Yeah, that's so impressive. It's congratulations on all of that. So, okay, so you open the doors and then 2020 comes along and there's a pandemic and people are not traveling. They're not going, they're not going anywhere. You know, for the most part, anything that's interactive and open to the public has been closed down, but yet you kept your doors open or you kept business. What did you do to get creative? Because all of our, our members had to get creative and with their business during the pandemic. What did you end up doing? Uh, great question. So we immediately, uh, the morning after our voluntary closure, we closed when schools started to close and with, when other attractions started to close before it was mandated. And then of course it became mandated and we had a 16 week closure, which encompassed the entirety of our high season uh, in a seasonal tourism climate here. So we, uh, as a staff, the morning after the voluntary closure, got together and said, well, this is an opportunity to do uh, two or three things. We're going to lean into our online presence and launch an online content platform so that we could continue our mission online at a time when people needed laughter more than ever and were sitting at home. Uh, so we made the most of that opportunity. We produced the first virtual Lucille Ball Comedy Festival. And there were upsides and silver linings to that because uh, we were able to get a, a huge number of great names to participate because they could do so from home. So one of the cool programs we produced just as an example was uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame uh, and Jimmy Fallon interviewing Weird Al Yankovic, who they share as a hero. Uh, so we were able to put together some really unique conversations and continue our mission that way. And then on site here, we invited and worked hand in hand with epidemiologists every step of the way of those 16 weeks of closure to revamp, again, one of the most interactive museums in the world for the COVID era. Uh, that wasn't easy, but we worked really hard at it. And that, you know, from a business standpoint, we actually uh, took a page from the playbook of Hilton's Clean Stay initiative. They immediately started branding their system of health and safety protocols. We did the same and branded this program Laugh Safe. And it ended up winning a lot of awards and getting a lot of accolades and press attention um, as sort of a, a leader that in the industry uh, in terms of a program that went beyond whatever the baseline CDC recommendations were at the time. And we knew that people couldn't laugh if they weren't feeling safe. If you're feeling anxiety, you're not gonna have a good time. So we really went out of our way to make visitors feel safe from that point forward. Okay, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I've read about it, about the interactive capabilities of the museum. Give our viewers that aren't familiar with a, an example of what you're talking about. Sure. So from years of producing the comedy festival, we knew that there was this very personal relationship that people have with comedy. And people will say it's subjective. Uh, two people can go to the same show and walk out and have completely different opinions, obviously. So the entry point to the storytelling became the personalization of each visitor's sense of humor profile. So the first thing a visitor does in the lobby is complete a fun exercise where they're sort of tapping things on a screen that they find funny, whether they're individuals or television shows or films throughout all eras and genres of the art form, uh, alternate forms of uh, comedy and podcasts. 
all of that uh, creates a profile for you as a visitor that's stored on a chip, an RFID chip on your wrist. And throughout the rest of your visit, you use that chip to tap into exhibits and the exhibits uh, read the room like any good comedian needs to and present you. The idea is not to present visitors content they're already familiar with. It's to sort of connect the dots and trace the lineage uh, of comedians and artists and content from one generation to the next so that they're learning and being educated about the pillars uh, and pioneers of the art form. That's so impressive. I want to go. I want to come. <laughs> yeah, so, a lot of, yeah, I, I hope that you do. I think you'll really enjoy it. And I'll, <laughs> and I'll learn all about your sense of humor and uh, then I'll know uh -oh, all of your tastes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that'll be scary. Okay. Because you don't like, it'll be really scary to know what's going on up here. <laughs> okay. So I know that you, year 2021 came around and you guys did a deal with Netflix. I'm really curious, is that something that you approached Netflix with or did they come to you? How did that happen? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, that was based on relationships that we had in the industry via our advisory board and people who had been really close to our development, including, uh, for example, Kelly Carlin, George Carlin's daughter. So one of our first major uh, archival acquisitions was the George Carlin Archive. and you know, it's 25,000 pieces uh, from his career, including thousands of joke notes on scraps of paper and uh, cocktail napkins and hotel stationery. And it allowed us to present a case study on the comedic mind, one of the most prolific comedic minds the world will ever know. And uh, Kelly Carlin uh, has a good relationship with a guy named Marty Kallner, who is a renowned producer. And he was already involved in a concept around honoring the greats of stand-up in the form of a hall. And so in the process of their, in their creative process, uh, more than one person said to them, you've got to go to Jamestown and see this thing that just opened. So a whole team of producers uh, came to town and I remember touring them and being maybe 15% of the way through the museum in the second gallery and one of them saying, oh, this is the place, uh, a pretty resolute conclusion. And so that was the beginning of a partnership with Netflix, uh, where we are now to be the bricks and mortar home of the hall, honoring the greats of stand-up. And we began construction just before the pandemic uh, on our first expansion, our first major expansion, which is right across the street. and. Uh, that will be the home of the hall and that will air on Netflix this coming spring. That's fantastic. So, you know, just hearing your stories, you know, it makes you think, oh, this is so easy for Journey. She She's just got it laid out in front of her. But I'm sure there were difficult times. I mean, what you've what you've done, you've embarked on something that's never been done before. There's never been a museum for comedy, right? So talk to us about some of the times maybe that you got discouraged, but you just kept on going. Because as an entrepreneur, you know, there are always times it's going to be difficult, right? And how do you just keep going? Good question. Some people will not believe this, but even early on when I was speaking with foundations who support the arts, I got a couple of reactions to my inquiries 
that said things like, well, we don't really think of comedy as as part of the arts, or we don't think of it on a, a playing field level with uh, the ballet that we support or the theater. And so it is true that comedy as an art form has never really gotten the same level of reverence and respect and appreciation of the traditional or classical art forms. And so it became important. It was difficult, but it became important to draw the parallel to any art museum. And when you visit the National Comedy Center, you'll see that's the approach we took. It is, at its core, uh, less the the accent is less on the syllable of glorifying the individual and more about the work. Just like when you go mm-hmm. to an art museum and you're and school groups of students are studying paintings on a wall, I had to make the case over and over again that what comedic artists have contributed to our culture is important, it matters, it's of value, and it's worthy of study. Uh, Making the case for comedy as something that's worth supporting philanthropically uh, involved a lot of anecdotes about holding up a mirror to society, um, Mm -hmm. social justice, and making sure that funders understand that comedy plays a role that uh, is critical in our daily lives, not just to keep us laughing and get us through as an elixir, but truly as one of the most powerful forms of speaking truth to power. Comedy has been at the, at the uh, forefront of every seismic social change movement in this country. And I don't. I think that's just in general uh, a case that's undermade. That's a narrative that is undertold. You know that's so true, and I don't think people really think of comedy like that, but it is so true. It really does show the fabric of our society and what's going on, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's and said you've that been. The best, go ahead. I was just going to say that it's said that the best way to uh, learn a nation's history is through its comedy, and I have to right. agree. Yeah, completely. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit because you'd mentioned this earlier. Um, yes, the museum has gotten a tremendous amount of accolades as being the best museum and written up in every you know periodical and recognized by so many different um, organizations as being one of the best museums in the country. How are you doing that? And I'm just curious as a business owner, you know, lots of business owners go and they'll hire a PR firm. And they'll get on programs to to get on lists to become the best or get selected as the best. Did you do that as well? Or did they come to you? Did you apply for these competitions? How did that work? We actually, I have a wonderful relationship with our our current PR firm. And they've done wonderful things for us. But we didn't really come to that relationship until after those accolades uh, had been accumulated. So I think we were fortunate over the years in working with various PR entities or even ourselves pitching things and pushing things out just to ask people to show up, ask people to come and review us, ask people to come and experience it. Because again, I was nervous until the day it opened and continue to be. But uh, one thing that's been incredibly validating is just looking at our visitor reviews. So whether you believe anything I've said on this podcast or put much stock in uh, accolades from USA Today or Time Magazine, go and look at the visitor reviews on any of the major uh, review sites. And we are averaging consistently five out of five stars. So 
we kind of got this confidence at a certain point that, okay, we did all right here and we didn't open a B, a B minus uh, and people like it. And it's been interesting to see that we're getting good reviews from average Joe American tourists and casual comedy consumers who don't identify as aficionados or particularly that interested in the art form, um, but also from the comedy community itself and from the artists. And that's a, a difficult uh, community to please. I lay awake many nights in the 10 years building this, just thinking, is it a bad idea to build something for one of the most cynical uh, communities of the arts that's really good at making <laughs> fun of things? Or to build something that's so institutional about the most anti-establishment uh, art form uh, or group of artists. So this was a, a high wire act for sure. And I guess to answer your question, it was less a concerted effort to pitch and seek out awards and more just us kind of saying, okay, the doors are open, please come check it out and let us know what you think. So how long did it take you to, from, from the very first, you know, conversation uh, journey, we'd like for you to step in and help us with this. Uh, you understanding what the vision was to where you finally opened up your first door, you know, the doors finally opened. How long was that? Uh, I would say we sort of threw the flag in the ground and announced that we were going to do this in Jamestown at the 100th birthday festival of Lucille Ball. And lots of people thought that was crazy. You know, there wasn't a major comedy presence at the time in Jamestown other than the annual festival, which draws visitors from all 50 states. Our ticket buyer zip codes represent all 50 states each year, which is pretty remarkable um, in terms of 15,000 people descending on Jamestown, New York. Um, and so I think it's been, yeah, I guess now 11 years. Wow. And uh, obviously a global pandemic hitting, you know, after our first year of operation was difficult timing. But like I said, there have been some silver linings there. And mm -hmm. we feel like we have a lot of momentum and people need us more than ever in terms of laughing and appreciating the things that get us through. One of the things about the pandemic is that I think people started to appreciate what can we cling to during the most difficult dark days. And laughter is one of those things. I think the day that a person can laugh again after experiencing loss or tragedy is the day they start to realize that there's hope. So in, so then it was basically around 10, was it 10 years before you opened the doors? That's right. That's a long time to work on a project before you know if it's going to be well received or not. So you obviously had the faith. <laughs> I think that my team and the designers I worked with would say that I did not have the faith because <laughs> I was I was I was constantly uh, worried about it. And we knew, especially if you're going to draw people all the way to Jamestown, New York, you can't open a B plus. It can't. It can't be subpar. And so I think your question before was about, you know, how did you do that? How did you build something that was received well as one of the best museums anywhere? And I think the answer to that very simply is along the way, we never greenlit anything that was subpar. And it didn't make me any friends. And th there were many, many tense, frustrating days. And the timeline was affected and everybody's 
anxiety levels were high. There were seven different firms working in concert on one of the most aggressive, you know, once we were actually in the construction and, and production phase, it was a much shorter period of time. Uh, and it was one of the most aggressive timelines any of the firms worldwide had ever worked on. And so I, I wasn't a popular figure for saying, like, I'm sorry, we can't go to the next step until we fix X, Y, or Z, or, hey, I don't think we've really hit the nail on the head here with this concept, so we can't keep moving. And that was the hardest part of all of this that I think would be applicable to anyone, any business owner or entrepreneur. If you're the entrepreneur launching something that you want people to like at the end and, the, and you're building a product, uh, saying okay and moving the timeline along when things haven't quite hit the mark is only going to come back to haunt you later. Mm-hmm. Good words of good words of advice there. Some wisdom speaking. I'm I'm uh, uh, curious. I mean, you're you're dealing with all these different celebrities. I know that uh, Carl Reiner is another one of the talents that have donated all of their. Um, I don't, I don't know what you would call it, but all of their content materials over to the museum, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So Carl Reiner and then Lucille Ball and, and George Carlin and, and there's so many more. Are you meeting some of these folks? I know obviously Lucille Ball and Carl Reiner have already passed and Carl and, and George Carlin, but there's new people coming on board that are still alive. Are you working with them? Yes. Uh, it's an interesting conversation because People don't like to think about their mortality. And so particularly when it comes to their comedy archives, it's sort of we've seen it's the last thing anybody has made a plan for. Uh, a great example of that that I that has warmed my heart and been validating as far as our mission is the example of the Smothers Brothers, who are still with us. And we, when we approached them about their legacy and their archives, there was an earnest reaction uh, of shock that anybody cared or that we were ready to tell their story with such reverence and uh, make sure people and make sure to educate people on the meaning and the significance of what they did. We see a lot of people in their 20s who think that The Daily Show uh, or Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update today are you know at the forefront of political comedy and have no idea about the history of the Smothers Brothers. And if you go back and watch those clips, they were incredibly hard-hitting and pretty biting, uh, surprising for the time period. And of course, they famously were fired for speaking truth to power and criticizing the war effort. And I think they're heroes. And so we were pleased to welcome them here to do a show and a stage interview in 2019 and do a ribbon cutting on a new display and exhibit about their legacy. Uh, you mentioned Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner was a founding advisory board member of the National Comedy Center. So in our conversations, Carl and I, it was about this being important. He, It wasn't hard to sell Carl on the idea that comedy as an art form is deserving of this level of cultural institution. So he was on board years before we opened. And mm-hmm. after his passing, we started conversations with his family and that led to uh, a relationship where it was decided that we would be the entity to preserve Carl Reiner's treasure trove of an archive that dates back to the earliest jokes he ever wrote for television through the oh, last wow. the last joke he ever wrote and the last recordings of his voice. <clears throat> and this allows people to study uh, an incredible career in comedy that 
that uh, didn't just touch film and television, but includes am amazing recordings and collaborative uh, art in its process with Mel Brooks and Steve Martin. Carl Reiner was one of these artists that made everyone around him better. And that's a unique story to really emphasize in comedy. Uh, so Mel Brooks and Rob Reiner going on the Today Show to announce that to the, to the world uh, was a significant moment where I stopped stressing for one moment about what had happened since the doors opened and went, okay, we're fulfilling this mission and we are doing what we were meant to do. That's fantastic. What a great story. I love hearing that. I'm curious, when you, is it you making these solo decisions? Do you have a team around you that's helping you? Or like when you say, you know, look, we're not moving forward till this is right. Is there not a group of people saying, well, where's the money coming from to make it right? Or we need to move on. We're spending too much money on this. Is the board hitting on you? I'm curious, because uh, I would think you're answering to the board quite a bit. Is that correct? Yes. So there is an incredibly hardworking uh, group of people that has been the board of directors uh, that brought me in, that told me about the vision. You know, this idea wasn't mine. And they were trying to stay true to what they knew Lucille Ball's intention was. And they rolled up their sleeves and uh, worked like staff at times when we needed them to. And they have really been the ones to guide and challenge me and kick the tires on everything I do. Uh, so the, the local board of directors of the National Comedy Center in Jamestown is an incredible group of individuals without whom we wouldn't be here. Uh, Tom Benson is the president of that board. And you mentioned, I think, in, in your question, somebody who helped figure out, like, how are we going to find more money for this? Uh, he deserves uh, the utmost credit for helping figure this out and get us from A to B and figure out financing a pretty wild project to the tune of $50 million. And then you asked about whether I'm making these decisions. No, I mean, yes, but I pictured as you were asking that question, uh, a leadership team that's smarter than I am. Uh, Malachi Livermore is our director of programming and guest experience. He's been incredible. And he was the one most side by side with me in the room, giving me, I think, the courage at times to say, we can't pass this. We can't green light this. We got to send this back to the drawing board. And that helped me a lot not to feel like the sole decision maker. So he deserves a lot of credit for the quality of what's here. Laura LaPlaca is our director of archives, um, who really uh, forged the relationship with many of the estates for whom we preserve archives. Uh, Gary Hahn is our VP of marketing and communications, who's brilliant. Uh, and then we've worked with some creative forces in the industry, like Stephen J. Morrison and Nathan Marshall, uh, companies like JRA and Cortina in the museum world. So this has been a huge team effort of people much more talented than I. So I always like to ask our guests on this show, you know, you, you've now been into it over a decade, right? You've seen it from the, from the beginning of the vision and to where the doors have opened and you're over and over again rated as the number one museum in the country. What would you tell the young journey that was just starting out um, what would you tell her today, knowing what you know now? Uh, that as hard as a day is, there's tomorrow. You know, it's there are some really difficult days, but uh, you get another chance. And sometimes when you sleep on it, you're going to wake up feeling better. And it doesn't always feel that way at night. 
I think I would also tell her, somebody told this to me, so it was a good piece of advice, was just hold on loosely. And I and I know that in my earlier days, I was trying really hard to grip everything very tightly because I thought that meant I was a better leader and a better executive director. And that's not the case. Uh, gripping very tightly every aspect of a process isn't going to allow you the headspace to see the big picture, to step back and to have new ideas that solve problems um, or creative solutions to go around a barrier. So hold on loosely, I guess, is as funny as it is to to uh, hearken to a song. Oh, I love that. That's great advice as well. Um, so what's next for Journey? What's or what's next? next for the museum? Yeah, yeah. Pretty synonymous these days. I don't, I don't do a lot of <laughs> other things. I sometimes, I sometimes see my kids. Uh, they'll be in therapy about this forever. But uh, what's next for us is that in 2022, we are uh, opening two major exhibits. Uh, Johnny Carson. So we are the preservation home of the Johnny Carson archives, and you'll see an exhibit in 2022, 30 years of late night, 30 years later. Uh, oh, and wow. we're also, yes, we're also opening the Carl Reiner exhibit in the spring of uh, 2022. So those are projects that are in production right now on pretty aggressive timelines, and it's all coming back to me. We're, we're in a similar mode to what we were right before the museum opened, trying to make sure that these things are the best that they can be. Okay, so how do we how do we get tickets? How do we you know how do we show up there and experience the whole museum? Where do we go? Uh, everyone can and should go to comedycenter.org. That is the National Comedy Center's website, and you can become a member, which gives you uh, unlimited access to the museum. And one of the most consistent pieces of feedback we get when people leave is, wow, I spent four hours and I should have planned to spend four days here. There's that much content within these exhibits and you can really spend days, uh, I say affectionately, geeking out on comedy. It's really enjoyable. So I recommend the membership. Uh, you can donate at comedycenter.org slash donate. And actually right now we're running something where you can get a, a copy of one of Carl Reiner's books. And you can also find our National Comedy Center Anywhere content platform uh, at comedycenter.org. Wow. What a great time spent with you just now, Journey. This is fantastic. I love it. I'm super excited. I'm going to make it to the Comedy Central. Uh, I'm going to Comedy Central, not the Comedy Center. Sorry about that. <laughs> but I'm going to be sure to make sure I make it to the Comedy Center Museum. And, and um, I can't wait. Maybe you'll be there. I'll have a chance to get to meet you. I lo would love that opportunity. But Thank you for being here today with us. This has been great. I've learned a tremendous amount and uh, I believe in comedy and I think we should always keep a smile on our face too. So thank you for doing what you're doing. And I'm sure Lucille Ball is looking down saying, thank you, Journey. Oh, that's, that's incredibly sweet of you to say uh, because Lucille Ball is certainly one of the people I have the most respect for uh, in the context of not just the arts, but in the business community. So it's been a pleasure to be on this program. Thank you for having me. Well, we appreciate you very much. And for everyone still tuning in, make sure that you tune in next week, next Thursday. Uh, we have a surprise guest next week. Um, and then also check out with glow.com and tune into the March 3rd through the 6th event, the inaugural Glow Summit with all the different speakers. And if you sign up now, you get the early bird pricing. So look forward to seeing everyone there. 
Until next week, stay safe and God bless. Bye-bye.